Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 37, Blankets, by Craig Thompson. I was following the eye, 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 was following the pack, all swallowed in their coats, with scarves of red tied round their throats, to keep their little heads from falling in the snow. Welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is a book club, and every month <laughs> we take a thorough look at one particular piece of literature that we've, of course, both read, and we decide whether it's worthy of its reputation and is it, in fact, required reading. So here with me now is the, what's his brother's name, Pete? No, it's Phil. Here with me now is, I guess, the Phil to my Craig, or unless you should be Craig and I should be Phil. Who? <laughs> oh, I guess that does work out. So Maybe. here with me now, the Craig to my Phil, 
It's Tom Panneries. Hey, how are you doing? Man, alive. it took a while to get through that. Yeah. I, I'm doing well. I mean, we're on the cusp, the cusp of a holiday. Yes, two weeks. It's two your weeks favorite until holiday, my isn't break. it? I love Thanksgiving. Yeah. I love Thanksgiving and Christmas, the whole holiday season, but, uh, but I absolutely love Thanksgiving because it's just food and relaxation and... I'm looking forward to. It. We got two weeks. I get. I am uh, two weeks from now. I will be on break. Ooh, yeah. Lovely. Same. Yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. So. Well, we're here to talk about blankets. Tom was super excited mm-hmm. that I picked a graphic novel, not a regular <laughs> novel. I think that basically it was a cry for help because he's just swimming, Ugh. swimming in work. So he wanted something that wouldn't be yeah. as intense as our as our yeah. regular novels. I'm and, still kind of swimming in work, but it's. I feel less overwhelmed than I did a few weeks ago when we recorded One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, so, well, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is out now, of course. Maybe I'm just in denial. Yeah. Oh, dear. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I just did a bunch of work and there's more work. I'm going to put it off for a few days. So. Man. Yeah, someone just said in a meeting today that we have like three and a half or four and a half weeks left in the semester. And I mm. said, Hubba, what? So that yeah. was certainly interesting. Well, yeah. yeah, so we are doing blankets, blankets. What is your history with this particular graphic novel? Um, it's not a terribly exciting history. <gasps> uh, this is the second time I've read it. The first time I read it, um, I had remember it being, I want to say I had remember it, remember it having been like solicited in previews or something at some point back around the time it was first published. So I'd heard of it, and then um, I was in our public library one day, the the North Side one. But this uh-huh. is back when the, nobody is going to understand this, but like <laughs> you and maybe anybody else from Charlottesville okay. who listens to this. But back when the North Side Library was still in the Albemarle oh, Square Shopping Center, yes. And I was probably I think Brett was born by then, so I was in I was in the library with him, like you know, looking up children's books or whatever, and um, it was on an end cap display. And I was like, well, you know, I've heard of this. I, and you know, it's here and, you know, I might as well pick it up. So I picked it up and I read it. I think it's going to be like a day or a day and a half. Like it, it took me, like I read it in like a weekend mm. and, and liked it and, you know, returned it and everything. Um, it was one of those, I mean to buy a copy of this if I ever see it on the cheap type of graphic novels, you know, and um, just to have, uh, but never did, and then you picked it, and I reread it, and, uh, and here we are. <laughs> here we are. Yeah, so it's not really exciting. It's basically like I heard of it, checked yeah. it out of the library. <laughs> I heard of it as well. I think I and, – and I feel like I might say something controversial, but I feel like I've gone through sort of the graphic novels that everyone needs to read, you know? And There's one more on my mind that – we haven't really talked about yet. Have Have we read it? Um, it depends. Have you read Mouse? Oh, I have both of them. Yeah, so, so that's, I guess that's no. the one that hasn't come up yet. Okay, but, yeah. yeah, no, I feel like yeah, it is. It's there, but you know, mm-hmm. there are those lists, right? That say yeah. you know the top ten novels you need to read, and so that was certainly something. It's just because you know, as I age, I've like gone through all these graphic novels and and series and stories that I think mm-hmm. are important or other people think are important. So this was on that list. So I knew of it. And I think I knew about it a little bit, but I ended up finding it at San Diego Comic-Con in a bin in 
and got it for cheap, which, you know, oh, nice. once you pick up this tome, you're like, oh, my gosh. But it took me years to read it. And I ended up reading it maybe this summer. I'd have to check what it was. But again, yeah, maybe a day, day and a half or so if you if you take your time. But clearly this man only knows how to write large novels. because <laughs> I just read Habibi and that was yeah. over 600 pages as well. So knowing about it, I had handed it off to a couple people who reading graphic novels is not like their their forte kind of thing, but they're very open to receiving things. So I gave them this. I think I gave them Why the Last Man, and mm. they had also read Fun Home. So they had seen some of that stuff, and they very much enjoyed it as well. So it seems like people who are, I guess, veterans of this media like you and I, and even people who are more – associated with the written word also I, I think it's it's easily accessible for all all types of people yeah although what's interesting is opposed to say i'm trying to think of the, the the graphic novels that end up on one of those like you know top 10 graphic novels you need to read etc um i think of like watchmen which does not have a splash page until the very beginning of the last issue and is like very very nine panel grid and like this book takes a lot of liberties and like you blow through some of these pages really quickly and you know so it's not as densely packed as like say that one yeah so that's that's why it does take maybe about a weekend to read through even though it's huge yep and you have to with him i mean just his his art is so intricate that you just have to yeah. Sometimes stare at it for a while, yeah. either, you know, maybe to figure something out, you know, what's yeah. happening here, what's the significance, or just how beautiful it is and that he's doing multiple yeah. things at once. So, yeah. I, I just, the question I would have of, of him or any graphic novelist who writes one in, um, in the graphic novel form, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a, it's not a, uh, a comic series that was collected in trade. And, like, would wonder about their process of draft and revision. Like, because, like, if you're writing a novel and you have a first draft and a second draft, you're cutting things and you're adding things. But that's, like, written word on the page. You're not drawing things along with it. So, you kind of like a a sit down and talk shop about, like, you know, their actual process as far as, like, you know – were there scenes that you cut? Did you move things from one chapter to another? Like, you know, you know, how, how what's the difference between revising a graphic novel versus a novel? Yeah, so I think that, you get a I lot of insight into that process with Alison Bechtel's. I sh- shouldn't really call it a sequel, but I guess it kind of is. The Are You My Mother? I think it is. Mm. Called. And yeah. So you can see her as she's working on Fun Home, like what she's mm-hmm. doing and everything so yeah okay well let's talk a little bit about craig thompson we don't have to do extreme because i mean this is a an autobiographical novel mm-hmm. so you know like all the other ones we've done so he was born in traverse city michigan in 1975 he his brother phil and his sister grew up in rural marathon wisconsin in a fundamentalist christian family his father was a plumber, and his mother alternated between working as a stay-at-home mom and a visiting nurse assistant for the disabled. Media such as films and television shows were screened or altogether censored by their parents, and the only music allowed was Christian music. This shouldn't be surprising to some. Uh, Thompson's only access to the arts were the Sunday funnies and comics, since they were assumed to be for children, to which Thompson attributes his early affinity for the medium. 
Thompson and his brother were particularly enamored of black and white independent comics in the 1980s, such as the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and the do-it-yourself ethic that they embodied. I'm a little shocked about that. Just because maybe his parents assumed that they were for kids, but the, I think the black and white Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is actually kind of violent, wasn't it? Yeah, and and from now I've actually never read the, or I might have read read like one or two issues back in the day. And then I remember them being collected in trades and then being colored. So I've read those and they were pretty violent. Um, but I'm trying to remember like, or maybe it was just my, my age by the time some of my friends got a hold of them, they were pretty expensive. Like you, they were a direct market thing and you had to, um, you had to track them down or find a comic shop that actually had them. So um, at least some of the early issues, but th- there was a point in the early uh, late eighties, early nineties where like the ongoing TMNT black and white series was, was being published. And by then, you know, it was a little more widespread, but you know, you, you had to go out of your way to get them, I guess is the mm-hmm. point I'm trying to make. Yeah. Like it wasn't something you could pick up at like a seven 11 or something. In high school, Thompson entertained dreams of becoming either a small-town artist or a film animator. He attended the University of Wisconsin-Marathon County for three semesters, during which he began writing a comic strip for the college newspaper and, quote, just kind of fell in love with comics suddenly. It filled all my needs. I was able to draw cartoons to tell a story, but I also had total control. I wasn't just a cog in some machine somewhere, end quote. After spending a semester at Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design, Thompson left his hometown in 1997 and settled in Portland, Oregon. He worked briefly at Dark Horse Comics, drawing ads, logos, and toy packaging for the company while working on personal projects at night. But he developed tendonitis, which is probably the worst thing an artist can develop. And he left Dark Horse and devoted his time to his own work. So his debut graphic novel was actually the semi-autobiographical Goodbye Chunky Rice in 99, which was inspired by his move to Portland and cute cartoony stuff from his childhood, such as the work of Jim Henson, Dr. Seuss, and Tim Burton. Burton. As a result of Chunky Rice, Thompson won a 2000 Harvey Award for Best New Talent and received a 2000 Ignatz Award nomination for Outstanding Artist. Thompson then followed Chunky Rice with the mini-comics Bible Doodles in 2000 and Doot Doot Garden in twenty in 2001. In late 1999, here we go, Thompson began work on a 600 pages, it's kind of insane, autobiographical graphic novel, Blankets, which was published three and a half years later in 2003 to critical acclaim. Time named Blankets its number one graphic novel for 2003. It'd be interesting. I should have looked up what else was on sale at that time. And Thompson won two 2004 Eisner Awards for Best Graphic Album, New, and Best Writer Artist, three Harvey Awards for Best Artist, Best Cartoonist, and Best Graphic Album, interesting they're calling it an album of original work and two ignatz awards for outstanding graphic novel or collection and outstanding artist thompson said that he believes blankets was a success because he was reacting against all the -the over-the-top explosive action genre in alternative comics and i didn't want to do anything cynical and nihilistic which is the standard for a lot of alternative comics as a result of blankets he rose quickly to the top ranks of american cartoonists in both popularity and critical esteem pulitzer prize winning comic artist hey this is interesting because we just 
spoke of him. Art Spiegelman sent him a long letter of praise for blankets, and in mock jealousy, Eddie Campbell expressed a temptation to break Thompson's fingers. Despite the praise of the book, which was Thompson's way of coming out to his parents about no longer being a Christian, resulted in tension between him and his parents for a couple of years after they read it. Here we go. This is what we all knew would happen. In 2006, October, a resident of Marshall, Missouri, attempted to have blankets and fun home, of course, by Alison Bechtel, removed from the city's public library. Supporters of the book's removal characterized them as pornography and expressed concern that they would be read by children. Marshall Public Library Director Amy Crump defended the books as having been well-reviewed in reputable professional book review journals and characterized the removal attempt as a step towards the slippery slope of censorship. That, I mean, say that three times fast. On October 11th, 2006, the library board's the library's board appointed a committee to create material selection policy and removed blankets and fun home from circulation until the new policy was approved. The committee decided not to assign a prejudicial label or segregate the books by a prejudicial system and presented material selection policy to the board. Um, and then on March 14th, 2007, so... I guess less than a year, maybe half a year later, the Marshall Public Library Board of Trustees voted to return both blankets and fun home to the library shelves. Thompson has explained that he is no longer a Christian, a status that evolved gradually beginning with his high school years, during which he became disenchanted with the church and its dogma, though he still agrees with Jesus' teachings. So this kind of reminds me of... Um, Something better. Remember that? Nothing better. Nothing better. The Tyler yeah. Page uh, thing That's we covered? Correct. Yeah, That's yeah. Um, really quickly, I looked up Time Magazine's 2003 best of list. Uh, so the top 10, they put it under comics. Um, so they did not separate it from graphic novels. I think these are all uh, uh, graphic novels. Uh, Blankets is at the top. Then you have The Fixer by Joe Sacco. Persepolis. <gasps> by Marjan Satrapi, Buddha Volumes 1 and 2 by Osamu Tezuka, Nightmare Alley Adapted by Spain. This is, I'm just reading right off of the list here. Louis Riel by Chester Brown, Paul Has a Summer Job by Michael <laughs> Rabagliati, Rabagliati, and I think I've read that if I don't, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was at the library. Palomar by Gilbert Herman Hernandez, uh, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen Volume Ooh. 2 by Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill, The Yellow Jar by Patrick Adignan, and Worst was 1602 by Neil Gaiman and Andy Kubert. What do you mean, Worst? That oh, was, it was voted Worst. That was, that was, I said at the bottom, it said parentheses, Worst, the Marvel 1602 series. Wow. There you go. Thank you. No problem. I appreciate you doing my legwork when I didn't. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's the plot synopsis taken from the Wikipedia. So even though it's 600 pages, it was condensed into just a couple fine paragraphs. So I'm appreciative of that. Blankets chronicles Craig's adolescence and young adulthood. His childhood relationship with his younger brother and the conflicts he experiences regarding Christianity and his first love. 
Though written chronologically, Thompson uses flashbacks as a literary and artistic device in order to parallel young adult experience with past childhood experience. Major literary themes of the work include first love, child and adult sexuality, spirituality, sibling relationships, and coming of age. Craig begins by describing his relationship with his brother during their childhood in Wisconsin. They have devoutly religious parents. Thompson also depicts a male babysitter. Oh, I forgot about this. Thompson also depicts a male babysitter sexually abusing both Craig and his younger brother, Phil. Craig suffers harassment from bullies at school and at church. Through his teen years, he continues to find it hard to fit in with his peers. But at Bible camp one winter, he comes to associate with a group of outcast teens, which includes a girl named Raina, who develops an in an interest. I thought it said an intense crutch. Who develops an interest in Craig. The two become inseparable and continue their relationship through letters and phone calls. They arrange to spend two weeks together at Raina's home in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Craig arrives and meets Raina's family, which includes her two adopted siblings, Ben and Laura, her older biological sister, Julie, and her parents who are undergoing a divorce. Raina feels responsible for taking care of Ben and Laura, who are mentally handicapped, as well as Julie's newborn daughter. Despite growing closer during the visit, the two return to their separate lives, but Raina eventually decides to break off the relationship. They maintain a friendship for a time, talking on the phone with diminishing frequency and increasing inanity. Ultimately, Craig tells Raina that their friendship, too, is over. Craig then destroys everything Raina had ever given to him and every memento of their relationship, except for the quilt she made. He stores it in the attic of his childhood home and moves out to start his own life elsewhere. Craig comes to terms with religion and spiritual identity while away from his family and confides in his brother that he is no longer a Christian, but still believes in God and the teachings of Jesus. He returns to his childhood home after several years, seemingly a different person. Ooh, okay. Well, of course, an important question is, did you enjoy this book? I did. It's a heartbreaking book. In, and it is, it, it puts you, um, I mean, at least this is me, it puts you through an emotional ringer, but I do like, genuinely enjoy this novel. This, this is a, as a novel. So, so yes. I, too, very much enjoyed it. I think just the speed with which I read it attest to that fact. Mm-hmm. And it's just a, it's a engaging read. And there were certain rough moments, you know, as you're reading, uh, perhaps disgusting moments. The pee battle was like, oh, Ooh. God. <laughs> See, I don't terrible. have a brother, so I, I wouldn't know. You didn't, yeah, I get that. Well, I mean, I do, but I've never had a pee battle with my brother. It wouldn't turn out well anyways. And, yeah, I forgot about some of that that, um, crazy babysitter. But, again, you know, just how visually appealing it is. If there weren't any words, I think this novel could stand up on its own as well, which is, that's crazy. That doesn't happen all the time. So, yeah, I very much enjoy this as well. Yeah, it, it reminded me, it did, parts of it did remind me of Nothing Better by Tyler Page, which uh, you and I talked about on an episode of Pop Culture After <gasps> David. I don't remember which, which number, it was like in, somewhere in the 80s. And then um, another piece that it reminds me of is Sean McKeever's The Waiting Place. Oh. Um, is, uh, takes place in a small town in either Minnesota or Wisconsin, I think. And uh, 
it has a lot of the same elements. This is a town much like uh, the one Craig lives in, um, although it does not have as many. I don't think it has the religious themes that both Tyler Page's uh, "Nothing Better" and and blankets do. But um, but and I covered that on Pop Culture Every Day, and I think it was like episode forty nine or something like oh that. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You're just pimping yourself all over the place. Well, you know, it's 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 appropriate for the for the setting, I guess. I, I guess so. Plus, you're on Two True Freaks, so it makes sense. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Well, yeah. This is called blankets, and so <laughs> I thought we would start off by asking the question: What do you think the significance of blankets is? And where are the various places that we actually see them in the story? Are they always used the same way? Well, they're not always used the same way, but to, like we see it in the beginning with um, him and his brother fighting over them when they're when they have to sleep together in the bed. There's other times when they're in the bed together where they, um, you know, they kind of huddle up under them, etc. At one point, he tells Reyna about like making like a a, a naval uh, like a playing like battleship or something with the bed and <laughs> and all that. So there there's a sense of of play with them. There's also the sense that of comfort and stuff that it gives you warmth. Um, with with um, Reyna, of course, she makes him a blanket. Yeah. And then there's the repeated or the motif of snow. Throughout mm. the entire graphic novel, the blanket of snow that falls upon you know the town, but it, which I'm, it sounded like I'm being cheeky, but really, I mean, there's an obvious, uh, there's an obviousness to that to that reference mm -hmm. that he wants us to think of these blankets of snow stuff. I mean, those are certainly all the instances. Do you think they're all representing the same thing? I if don't they represent think anything so. Okay. No, I mean, uh, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think so, but I'd like to hear what you think first. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I think a lot of it with blankets, I, I think it's true that blankets in general are comforting. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are even those, I, I know that people who might have depression or anxiety, they get those weighted blankets. I think other uh -huh. people also use it, you know. Yeah. And so I feel like some of it is a lot of um, comfort, some of these things that he finds, especially the one that Raina makes. I think the fact that he goes and, and finds that blanket again. And then with the, with the brothers, that's a safe space, especially when it's cold, like that's mm -hmm. the one thing that brings them together. Otherwise, oftentimes they're sort of fighting, but the blanket almost seems like it brings them together. They can have fun as long as the blanket is involved. So I don't know if there's like comfort and safety there and perhaps like, may I don't know if this is a stretch, but like unconditional love with with the with the blanket but mm -hmm. apart from that maybe things change so when he puts the the blanket away in storage you know that's sort of showing that his relationship with Raina really is done uh he, he and his brother once they separate and they're in separate rooms you sort of see how they're almost alienating each other from themselves i don't know i that could be a stretch what do you think well, I think it both. I think it's it's kind of double edged in both because, like, the first at first when his brother and him get into separate rooms, they crawl under the same blanket for the f mm -hmm. for a little while at first because they miss each other, but then they do eventually grow apart. So, you know, um, in that case, you know, the, those first few nights where they're together and they're they're apart, and then they get together. The blanket is a sort of comfort or togetherness or closeness. Um, mm -hmm. It's interesting that like the thing that she made for him and that took the most effort 
and she put the most work into was the thing he kept. Mm -hmm. He burned all the letters, he burned everything else, but he said there's something special about this thing. And it was like, it's like the very definition of like bittersweet. Like you want to forget about this girl, but you know, you definitely can't. And you hold on to the one thing that is not, even if it's a bittersweet thing, you, you just, you still let it, uh, um, you still have to hold on to something because you can't like deny it ever happened. Plus it's, it does mean a lot to you and she does mean a lot to you. So I think that's, I think there's something in there as well. Let's move on to Craig since he's our lead character. How would you describe him as a character in his own story or what kind of person do you think he is? Interestingly enough, like I liked him better the second time I read this. I think the first time I read this, I, I was very frustrated by him. Like, I, I just, granted, the first time I read this was probably about 10 years ago. I, I just remember feeling, not that I didn't like him, but I was just, like, uh, annoyed that he wasn't more assertive of himself, that he seemed mm. like kind of a kind of a wet blanket at times. There was something <laughs> about him that just was off-putting to me. And then I read this again, and I was like, I, I, I like him. There are some times where I do get a little frustrated with him. and I, But but I see like how he would – I don't know. I, I can relate to him on the level of like how he would be like intimidated by a girl like Raina and like we're in her, in her life and, and her world. Um, and then also the, the effect that the abuse that he suffered in the hands of his father as well as like that babysitter had and and, you know – just kind of his upbringing had on him and made him that way. Mm-hmm. So I think he's a really well-rounded, believable protagonist, even if he was not based on a real person or was not the, you know, he was not a real person. This, this character is uh, very, very well realized. Yeah. I think I didn't have that particular, I, he as a kid annoyed me, I would say, though that's, I guess my general MO anyways, just because with the things that he did, to his brother and then you know, uh. his brother got kicked out and then just some of that stuff but as a teenager i felt for him more just the ostracized per the teen you know that doesn't really have a group and has trouble fitting in and that kind of thing so it's um i, I think craig represents a lot of what actual teens go through you know finding mm-hmm. the, the ones that don't have groups or perhaps they're pretending to be in a group but you just sort of see those struggles that i think are true to our teenagers right now yeah yeah uh especially with the and i know we're gonna get to um you know the the, the religious uh aspects of it but especially with that that questioning of questioning of things questioning of like your place in the world um, your concept of religion and faith, et cetera, uh, that is part of adolescence in a big way, you know? Yeah. And I felt that was very, very well done. Absolutely. What do you think of his brother's role in this particular story, Phil? I think that, like, I could totally see how, because later on he talks about feeling, like, very, very guilty for the fact that he never protected his brother from, like, the abuse that he suffered. And that he kind of blames himself for... Two things in particular. One, the babysitter. 
because um, you know, as you said in the plot synopsis, like the the, the way the babysitter is illustrated, he's this like big hulking, almost like high high school lineman type of teenager. Yeah. You know, we're gonna go play a game, and like they play, they take turns doing, it, and he's clearly molesting these two boys. Yeah. And Craig Craig is always the first. It's the way it's portrayed is that Craig's the first one to go, and then the babysitter takes Phil. And Craig, toward the end, starts to blame himself for the fact that he never stood up to the babysitter and protected his brother. And then um, the other thing that I remember very clearly, it's from the very, very beginning of the book, but the whole um, cubbyhole incident. The yeah, fact yes. that, that, you know, and I don't know what is is with you and people in um, novels being forced to live in like, you know. Oh, my gosh. What are you thinking of? I was thinking of Jane Eyre. Okay, right? I wanted to room. be sure that was yes, of course. Well, wow, look at you! You liked it more than I think you're you're freely admitting because you remember that detail. I'm proud of you, Tom. <sighs> and I believe Harry Potter also was forced to live. Yes, that's although true. I never read a Harry Potter novel, but um. Oh. But yeah, so he, what he used to do is like the two of them would fight because they, they were forced to sleep in the same bed together. The two of them would fight. They would wake their parents up or they would make so much noise that dad came up and threw one of them. And in, in the case in the beginning, it was Phil into the cubby hole, which had like spiders and stuff. And it was just really scary when you're that little, like things like places like that are very, very scary and it's traumatic. And he later on, like totally comes to blame himself. And I don't remember, uh, you know, exactly where it is for the fact that, that he never protected his brother from either of these things. And I guess he, you know, they, they grow apart as teenagers, yeah. Which is what happens, you know. I mean, I think I think that um, unless the two of them were so close together in age, which I don't think they are. I think they're a few, they're just enough years apart. They could very much be uh, grow apart like that, even though they live in the same space. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you can almost measure Craig's changes. I was going to say dynamic changes, and I thought I think that's redundant. His changes by looking at his relationship with his brother Phil because they're so close they're in the same bed and then you know they start to grow apart once they have separate living areas they're really estranged once they're teenagers and then he's able to after the Raina situation leaving her or she leaving him he sort of broaches that space again and and they I feel like maybe reconnect is too strong but it seems like he's reaching something out and asking you know have you been drawing recently let me see and then I think that moment was it his brother getting married that he they came back and that that moment in the bathroom yeah I think so I'm flipping through it right now so just I mean not that they're ever the closest but I think you can almost chart like Craig's changes and his relationships with people with his relationship with Phil as well. And it's interesting just looking at the two of them and the character designs they're so similar in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then Phil is very like alt rock kind of yeah. or punk like the way he's and He's got kind of one of those skater haircuts that <laughs> Yeah, the half shaved. Yeah. And but Craig, you know, he's kind of nondescript but he has longer shaggy hair. I think some people make fun of him. So they're almost alternative in their own way. And then 
it seems like they've sort of quote unquote normalized once they come back for the wedding. But yeah, yeah, I, I think Phil is just like a litmus, almost a litmus test. Yeah. Before the wedding, um, Craig comes home for his graduation from high school and Phil is like Craig and Phil both have, they don't have like the same haircut, but they both have like kind of much shorter hair and mm-hmm. it's, you know, Phil's is blonde and kind of just, you know, it's very nondescript hair. And then they have the wedding later on. So it's the idea that these, the two of them can really, uh, can really relate to one another in terms of their, uh, in terms of like being adult men, as yeah. opposed to from, from the, for the first time from when they're little, little boys. And yes, yeah, so the second time they, they, they are at the wedding and then they're like, you know, um, where he notices how much bigger Phil is than him. You know, whereas he was this little kind of pip squeaky kid and stuff like that, you know, and as somebody who like I have a younger sister who's three years younger than me. So when I was a senior in high school, she was a freshman. And beyond that, we barely saw one another after I went away to college for four years. You know, I'd be home in the summers and stuff like that. But and then I moved away right after college. So. You know, we were never forced to share a bed or anything like that. But I mean, the, the point being just that I can relate to the sort of cl- relative closeness when you were kids, mm-hmm. even though we used to fight like cats and dogs sometimes, but that's <laughs> what siblings do. And um, then kind of being apart and relating to one another more on, on a better level as um as adults than we did as teenagers because we just weren't around with each other a lot. And so, so that's where I found like it really, really believable because I just was pulling from my own experience. Mm. But I think you're right about his, the, the character, his character arc through the lens of his relationship with his brother is very well put. Yeah. Well, the other main character I would say is of course, Raina. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've got a question about first love. We can come back to that. Yeah. But yeah, let's just talk about Raina's character for the first bit here. Okay. So how is she essentially almost two different people in the novel? And what does that say about Craig? I think that figuratively speaking, she's two different people. Like literally she's one person. Correct. Um, but like there's Raina who is – I think struggling with a few things, you know, rebel doing rebelling where she can struggling with the fact that she is a caretaker for, you know, her, her siblings struggling with her parents' divorce is very flawed in many ways. But then there's the Reina that Phil, and I think this is the Reina that Phil has struggles to let go of, which is the, is kind of this idealized kind of, picture of of what she is because the way she is drawn she's 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 very beautiful and 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 but not in this sort of glamazon you know supermodel sort of way there's there's a very realness to the way that craig thompson draws her which i really really appreciated you know she she totally looks like somebody i would have gone to high school with and um because i went to high school around the same time that craig thompson did uh, around these same years so um so i saw Raina, i saw the way she was drawn and i saw the haircut and the features and i was like wow this like this could and i mean like i could off the top of my head like lane two or three girls from my high school that like would totally fit her look and but even then, like, then I thought of, you know, then you think of like, you know, how 
there are there's a literal you know image of her like as an angel at one point and yeah. and and he 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 idealizes her and it it's subtle how the conflict between what his expectations are, are and what his idealism is and what the reality of all of this is where it comes in and and the one place that i felt was the most telling is about the middle of the visit with her because you know like at first i forgot yeah he was gone for like 2 weeks to see her yeah Probably about the middle of the visit, he said they kind of fall into a routine. And it's that, I think, that's where I think where that, that conflict between, like, you know, who she is and, and who he thinks she is really starts to take hold. Because, you know, you could go see her for a weekend and it's all making out and, you know, deep philosophical conversations. And, you know, and then you go home and then you write letters and everything, but you're staying with each other for two weeks. And, and by the end of the first few days or the end of the first week, you know, life has a way of setting in and you're not, they're kind of living together in that way. And, and, and I think that's when, that's when the bloom comes off the rose a little bit. And it's, it's important, you know, as somebody who's been married as long as I have, um, you know, it's important to understand what it's going to be like to live with that person. But at the same time, mm like when you are 17 and you've never been in love before it's a harsh reality i mean and i don't mean that she's like you know a psychopath or anything or there's anything fundamentally wrong with her or anything like that it's just it's just they a it's a hard blow where you're like oh wow this is this is not what i thought and um and she she kind of she doesn't assert herself in the way that like you know there's no sort of like TV or movie type of argument where she like, you know, lays it out for him. You know, you think I'm like this, but I'm not really like this. And this, you know, like, like we've seen on TV, like all the time, but she kind of does when she's like, look, I, I can't be in a relationship right now. Let's just be friends. And that becomes, you know, then, then he just cuts the cord. Cause he's like, I can't do this. Cuts the so. cord. This isn't a relationship with cable. <laughs> <laughs> But he does. He calls her up, and so I think I think you know there's there's that. But I think it makes her a. I think it makes her work as a character really well. Mm. Do you think they were truly in love? I think he thought he loved her, and maybe he did. I don't think that she was in love with him, but maybe on some level, he was her. Wait for it. Blanket. Oh, interesting. You know, like, like, not that she was using him. You know that see, see, oh, she was using him because it was comforting or whatever. Because that 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 implies something sort of um, malice or whatever. Um, I think she genuinely felt for him, felt mm -hmm. for him. But I don't think she, I don't think she was in love with him in the way that that you're in love with somebody who's going to be, you know, the love of your life. Um, I definitely think that he felt more strongly for her than she did for him. Yeah, I I think he went in. I mean, I think they probably each both served a purpose in the other's lives. Mm -hmm. I think for her, because of how much of a mom role she was almost playing, a caretaker role. Yeah, I think he was something that she could be free to not be in that role and and meet him on a different level. Yeah, uh, and be be her own age. And I think for him, he finally had somebody that he could relate to as well. So I think it was a lot about relating to someone 
um, your same age. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I almost see her as almost like the classical idea of, you know, women in the Odyssey with sort of the, you've got the temptress and then you have the waiting wife almost. Yeah. Because clearly, you know, there is that his burgeoning sexuality is certainly one of the themes there. But then if you also look at her and, and how adult she is, like she is older than her age attests, just taking care of her siblings, trying to keep the family together, taking care of her niece. You know, she yeah. seems to be one of the most responsible people in her household. So you have that Reina, and then you have the, yeah, the person who's who's starting to flower into a, a young woman. And then, you know, the other two Reinas I would see is sort of the hot and cold Reina, where you've got, you know, hot and heavy, first love maybe, and then all of a sudden pushing him away after after all of that. So I, I could also see that. I, I think it's, well, you know, it wasn't, at the end, it sort of was annoying. I thought, gosh, Raina, really? I also understand. I think I can empathize and show empathy for that character because of that position she was in. And it was just like another thing, another adult thing that she would have to handle beyond all this other stuff that she was having to do. Because she wasn't living yeah. her own life. She was having to live her life for other people. Mm-hmm. So I, I can understand how it ended up that way. I think it's scary when he when when you see how much invested he was, you know, and he tells her I love her, that she slips that note into the blanket, says I love you too. I think she was he scared her a little bit too, for the same for the reasons you were talking about. Yeah. Um, and also, like you notice her sister, who's Janet, I think is her name. I can't remember exactly. Um, her sister is such. A brat. Even as an adult, an older sibling, she is such a brat. And Raina has had to deal with that her whole life because they show images of her sister when she was like a teenager in the 80s and she was like, you know, just bratty to her parents. And then, like, she got married young. I think it was implied. Like, she got married, like, right out of high school and had the kid. And, 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 and all of a sudden it's like, you know, she's, you know, her, she, she feels so put upon by having this child that any opportunity she can, she'll just dump them on, dump the kid on her parents or, or especially her sister and then act like, I don't know, just really, she acts really, really snotty toward her. So Raina is like absorbing all of that and then having to take care of her two other siblings who are, you know, mentally, mentally handicapped. You're right. She's forced to be an adult in an age where much more than, um, anybody else uh is used to and i had friends who um they weren't necessarily taking care of like mentally handicapped siblings but like their parents were divorced they like um the parent they were living with was out working you know worked nights or whatever so them being the one who was still in that one of the siblings who was still in the house and having a younger brother or sister, they were essentially taking care of them, you know, cooking the meals and, and, you know, just making sure that everybody was kind of, you know, doing the homework and everything. And then they were had to do their own work and stuff. So there was that sense of like, you know, I have a lot to put up with at home and getting out is not easy. And, and I, I've, I saw some of my friends in post high school in relationships where they ended up with, you know, with with guys and 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 women who uh, who are kind of like 
forcing them to do the same thing, you know, where they were like, you know, Hey, I, maybe they had a kid or something with a, from a previous marriage. And now it's like, now you have to step to step into this role. And, you know, it, it, it really, it, it can, it can be, uh, it can be overbearing sometimes, you know? Mm, yeah. It's interesting to think what would happen if Raina had not been at home and the older sibling had been around with the after they had adopted those mm, kids like how yeah. they would be taken care of which probably not at all that would have i think the see i don't want to say like this the younger siblings are the reason for the parents divorce because i don't think they are i don't think we get much of a reason for the parents divorce i think it's this we're in the middle of it and it's just mom wants a divorce and i think it would have strained that marriage more without Raina there. Mm. And if, if the older sister was still acting the way she did and thought of everything as a burden because she's very self-centered, I think it would have strained the parents' marriage even more. And it was very possible that they might have divorced earlier. Mm. Um, not to say that the kids are the reason, but you know, it's just, it is something that puts a lot of strain on you. And yeah. Raina was kind of buffering that for them as well. Well, let's talk about the Christianity that okay. occurs in this graphic novel. How does Craig's faith in Christianity shape his life? And what are some moments in the story that we actually see this happen? I, I'm trying to think because it's I, I think you phrased the you phrased it as faith in Christianity as opposed to faith in God. And I, I want to say that you did that on purpose because it oh, seems that by the yeah. it seems that he's not it, it seems that he isn't wholesale rejecting the idea of you know, God or Christ and, and teachings and things like there's a, there's a fundamental aspect to his faith or the philosophy behind it, the spirituality, if you will, that he still, at least on some level, believes in and still holds to, but the actual religion is what he's rejecting. Mm. So the, because it's so, because the way religion is portrayed in the book, it's cast in many, in many cases, it's cast in a very negative, even hypocritical light. And it shapes him in his early life because of the way that, you know, he's so um, he is so like restricted by by it because of what every what all the adults tell him, you know, like uh, the whole, you know, the shame of of that he drew like a naked woman. Yep. You know, um, and and all of a sudden it's like all the shame, the shame, the shame and and um you know, and and the people in his and the people, the adults in his life who are like pushing him into the ministry and like things like that. And it's, you know, uh, as a young kid, y you understand that by the time he is 17 and and he's with, you know, Raina and he's like kind of struggling with how he feels and and how to act around this because he's been so like beaten over the head with, you know, the Bible all the time. So, and, and it's, and, and whether or not he has faith or he was forced into having faith in, in his own religion is, uh, is something that's been, uh, been very important up until that point in terms of his character development. And it's the end of the book is rather frightening because he goes through Ecclesiastes, but it's like really <laughs> out of context things. And the way, I mean, if you take anything out of context, it could be really terrible. Where is this here? I know where you're talking about, and I'm trying to find it. Right? And he's got, like, Page really disturbing things. 507? 507. Oh, yeah. 507, he said Ecclesiastes 11. Yeah. Yep. But, but I could have sworn like there's really something else. Really scary things. 
Yeah, it's after he he says he leaves the Bible behind. It's something about like it was near the end. Or was it something in Ecclesiastes where they were talking about like how it seemed like they put some other stuff in? Five forty six. I discovered that passages had been added to Ecclesiastes to Levin. 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 Yeah, the pessimistic tone. So. Yeah, and, and like five fifteen, you've got naked. A man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. Uh, but there's just, and then they put something else. So he's actually juxtaposing these really dire and sorrowful looking images with cartoony pigs. <laughs> a man um, can do nothing anyways, better than to eat yeah. and drink and find satisfaction in his work. And there's two pigs having a beer. <laughs> there you go. Yay. Yeah, the fact that. You know, the Old Testament is not the most uplifting of, of, of reads. It certainly depends. I don't want to say like the whole thing. There are certainly great moments, of, of course, of redemption and promise and things like that. But it, it also, you know, Job, the whole book of Job is rather sad. Uh, lamentations, so-called lamentations. So um, I, I feel like that potentially is something that may have uh, affected him. I think his parents... To a certain extent, but that was just, that was his household. So I think the rigidity and growing up in that structure with no mm-hmm. freedom, I think often, I mean, this is, I don't want to call it a trope disrespectfully, but it's a trope in the fact that it repeatedly happens. The fact that kids that grow up either, you know, as a pastor's child yeah. or in these really rep- I, not necessarily repressive, but very traditional or conservative, often when they're off on their own, break away from that and then pursue something else. Yeah, the, the trope of the pastor's rebellious daughter is Correct. is a trope. And and um or the uh or sometimes they don't rebel or they rebel violently because if you wanna take Craig's family situation one step further into horror they're very much like Carrie White's mother, you know, they're all going to laugh at you. They're all going to, you know, but the the fact that like, you know, Carrie, if you've read Carrie or you've seen the film with Sissy Spacek, like, you know, her mother is like, you know, she, she, the the movie opens famously with, with Carrie getting her period and like bleeding of like, what is this? And it's like being like shocked and then bullied because she's like, you know, a young, she's, well, like old, way too older, way older than like you know most girls get their periods, and um and and her mother like you know being so ashamed of like her daughter's like budding sexuality, like becoming a woman, and like you know just kind of that that shame and that guilt applied to it, but it's applied to it was very much more horrific because it's Stephen King, but that's what I thought. And then uh, you brought up the pages five six forty six and five forty seven, but if you flip the page to five forty eight and five forty nine, he has a conversation with his pastor about how like he's conflicted because he sees these contradictions and um his pastor says uh frankly it may be that the scribes tacked their own comments onto the original text over centuries of transcribing and pastor uses air quotes and then he says but don't let that discredit god words god's word instead recognize this as a growth process of the bible and then the next panel is he's is his narration growth process. This I couldn't accept. I have been taught the words of the Bible came straight from the mouth of God. If indeed they were st- subtly modified by generations of scribes and watered down by translations, then for me their truth was canceled out. It suddenly struck me as absurd that something as divineness as God's speech could be pinned down in physical parenthesis mass-produced form. My faith came crumbling down so easily, and that's when he hides his Bible. 
so it's just interesting how like it just takes that one thing so it was maybe it was that 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 very very tight control they had over him was is way too tight and it was that one slip and then everything comes crashing down because you cannot hold on to control of some over somebody for that long or that tightly and not expect them to rebel or slip away in some way or another and contradiction and and i think this is true now and potentially always is what mm-hmm. really throws people off you know when people see someone and they call themselves a christian but they're doing these horrific things or saying really hateful things uh-huh then that's like well you know if that's what a christian is then i want no part of that so it's uh-huh. it's a contradiction i think that's crazy um not crazy it's the contradiction that i think really causes that down like what i you know is this not from you know were god inspired god breathed what's his growth process but it really comes from the pastor like the pastor misspoke i mean that was insane what he said but he the pastor also makes some weird leaps unless it was the youth pastor but i think it was the pastor how he said that one kid was drawing naked pictures and that turned into pornography and then it turned into homosexuality. Yeah. At that moment, it seems like Craig breaks the the fourth wall Mm -hmm. because he's like looking, he's looking at the audience is like, how does that, what's, where's the connecting, the connective tissue there? So I think it's, yeah, mixed messages being just so contained within this, no freedom, just being more shame, shame, shame. Uh, Mm -hmm. No allowance, you know, for for something more. Because, I mean, art, sure. You know, there's a line, like, of of where there could be some shameful art. But not, I mean, think of all the the thing. You know, is the the Statue of David shameful because of its nudity? Yeah, that that was, and and I think that's where, where I think the phrase fundamentalist Christianity is really, really important. Because you have... um, you know, you go back to the Statue of David, and that's the, that's Catholic. You know, that's the Catholic Church, pre-Reformation, of course. But but even post-Reformation, you have art that depicts you know Christian stories and Christian ideas and Jesus in various forms, not just by people who are Catholic and and what have you. And and art exists in all religions, you know. Um, I know that that uh, the art associated with Islam does not necessarily does not feature uh, uh, pictures of illustrations of God of Allah or the Prophet Muhammad, but there is a there is a significant amount of of, of you know work from the you know Muslim artists that is um, gorgeous, you know, and then there's there's art across you know all sort you know Hinduism Buddhism, so the idea that art would be sort of sacrilegious in some way is is it's it's the control and i think it is that one particular sect of christianity that is just so restricting um so when when the pastor is talking about homosexuality as like the big bad boogeyman in the room it's it rings very true because i've seen you know either through people that i've run into students that i've known or whatever the whole um kind of that like Westboro Baptist church kind of viewpoint where, you know, people like literally believe that homosexuality is a sin and all these people are going to burn in hell. And like age was created by God to kill gay people. Like, you know, all these things that you hear, like these awful, awful hate filled messages. And I think that's, that's what his upbringing upbringing was. So it's not something that like, you know, that 
that I would associate with actual, like, you know, good Christian people. I think it's people who have perverted that particular message and they are using it for more control over other people than they are for actually honoring God as they would. But then again, I'm not very religious. So don't <laughs> Uh, I was just going to say that Good Christian People is the name of a short story by Flannery Larry O'Connor. Yes. Yeah. I read that many Do you years think ago. that he's making a commentary on the the sect of Christianity that he's grown up with? Or do you think it's not so much a commentary, but just how it affected his life? I think it's a little bit of both. Okay. Um, but I don't think he's, I think that uh, the way I took it was that, that everything you heard about these people might, is actually true. Because a lot of the a lot of the uh, the ways that they're described are kind of like it, it is a little bit tropey. Like I brought up Carrie White's mother from Carrie's mother from Carrie and everything, and, and so so they they are fitting a stereotype, and he's just kind of like, "Yep, this is what it was like," and is making a very quick commentary and wants you to draw your own opinions from it. I did recently read a book called All Eyes on Us, and I'm pretty sure the lead character. One of them, there are two. She, her family is also fundamentalist, so that was mm. like a huge part of it. So it's yeah, it's interesting. So I'd have to, I think, do more research, sort of on like how is this, you know, I'm PC USA, so how it how it differs, and I guess we're a little more liberal with certain things. I um, was I was raised in the Lutheran Church. Lutheran, yeah, you, would you say that your church is as conservative and mm. traditional as the fundamentalists? No, 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 okay, no. So we're talking about, so they're extreme. Yes. Yeah. You're talking about people okay. who are very, very extreme in terms of, of their I'm trying to think of, there are certain, I would say there are certain sects of Southern Baptists that might actually be a little more in line with this, but yeah, the, these are, these people are very, very extreme in terms of that. Do you think we saw that in his family though? I think we saw that. I think he was That's actually a little, father, not the yeah, but his father, but his father also fit the stereotype of just that abuse of father. He didn't need to necessarily have to be Christian in order to be the way he was. You would consider his father abusive. I think that, you know, it might, it was not as severe as say, you know, hardcore abuse, but you know, the, there's, there's some things where, uh, you could look at like the whole cubbyhole thing and and sure. and some of the anger, you know, like wait till your father gets home like that. There was, you know, I don't think it's an extreme case, but I think there's some th certain things that can certainly cause trauma. I also think his mother was passive aggressive and um, and used guilt in a way. Oh, what would Jesus think that type of thing? And like, you know, this, this the kind of shame and and those sorts of things that that were that were used. You know, it's interesting about the scene with the going back to the scene with the minister in Ecclesiastes. About fifty pages before that, on um, four ninety four through four ninety six or so, he's just gotten home from seeing Raina, and he goes back to school, and there's a whole section where he does Plato's allegory of the cave from the Republic. Yep. I wonder if he's pulling from that later on when he reads Ecclesiastes and, and he starts to see this sort of – because, you know, on a very basic level, you have, you know, the perf the perfection of something or the perfect uh, – the, per the idealized version of something and then what we see, which supposedly is not. It's a representation. So if – the teachings, if you know, if you have the the pure word of God, and I'm using air quotes here, 
and then you have the translation or representation through, say, various or various translations of the Bible passed down from generation to generation, which he says is watered down. But you know, you do think some things are lost in translation. Everything is is this not kind of a Christian allegory of the cave type of situation here? Conjecture on my part, mostly, but I did notice the allegory of the cave bit from the Republic. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it could be. Yeah, which is also around the time he's really seeing, he's really becoming even more disillusioned with the world in which he lives. You know, mm-hmm. in this case, it's it's school and not church, but in both cases, he becomes completely disillusioned with the world. Uh, well, let's talk about the art. Sure. Because, of course, that's half of its, of the medium there. How... Does his artistic style suit his story that he's telling? I think it suits it very well. I see how he's able to change it where he has to, and not in some of the obvious places. Like when his when he sh- when his brother shows him his drawings, and they're totally different from what we've been seeing. Yeah. I thought that was a nice little touch. There's a plainness to the way the characters in the real world is drawn, although there's like an accuracy to it. Just like, you know, I'm, I'm on page 476, 477, and that literally is the drive back from Michigan to the kind of country kitchen restaurant parking lot in Wisconsin, you know, like where they where they meet up and they do the kind of trade off for giving Craig to his mom. But like, you know, Thompson draws like the overpasses like in realistic detail right down to like the things that, that hold up the overpass and everything. just like little things like that. Um, I think really do a service to this. Uh, but then you have this just beauty in the way he draws snow and this sort of, oh, it just, it flows really well. And then when you get like Raina herself, you know, when he's envisioning her, you know, naked and seeing her naked, there's a, th- there's this flow to it. I can't even describe it. It's, it's, it's it, it, this is the way he is able to bend and shape the way his, um, his artwork goes with the mood and his own tone. I just, it's gorgeous. And I really, really love it. I think you were right when you said that you could take all the words out of this and it would still just be a gorgeous graphic novel. Yeah. Just how he lays it out. Mm. The, I I feel like he captures the essence of the characters. So it doesn't need to be uber detailed. I think what you need to know about Craig or Reyna or other people, he captures. He captures who they are. Mm-hmm. And so if he wants to add details to the tree, for instance, or something like that, or the landscape, then he's capturing, I think, that essence rather than, like, very detailed. Yeah. Um, I like how he's able to seamlessly go from a realistic to a surrealistic or fantastic sequence. Yeah. And just... Yeah, there are just some amazing moments, especially with the blankets, sort of how they wrap up the the people as well as the the book itself. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. And it's, again, I'm like, I'm flipping through this as we're talking about it. I'm just like seeing more and more and more of this and the, the pattern, like how he draws from the patterns in Raina's blanket when they're in bed together, you know, kind of wrapped around each other naked and everything. And it's just... um it's beautiful. It's, you know. Yeah. And he's not beholden to set panel sizes or anything. Mm-hmm. And, and they aren't always rectangular, which is really great. Yeah. So I, I like how he does that. Black and white. He This is another black and white that we've done. Mm-hmm. Um, Persepolis, of course, was black and white. 
you could kind of consider Fun Home at least two-tone. Yes. Because you use the blue and the white. So how does that help or, or accent? Uh, would it have been a hindrance if it had been colored, do you think? No, because I think he would have made it work with the white of the snow in that I'm sure that he would have found a way to color it so that it was kind of muted or whatever or, or fit the mood. But he, when I'm looking at his shading and his inking, uh, and the way he uses shadow and light and stuff, um, it it's really. Uh, I think it. I think it. I don't think it needs color. You know, yeah. um, I don't think color would have taken anything away from it. But it's just one of those works where I'm like, yeah, this this is, the, like he he knew how to work black and white in a way that uh, that you know artists who usually work in color don't necessarily always get to do. Um, so absolutely, yeah, and he uses. I mean, he's using the pen to do his shading rather than using the color to do mm -hmm. it, which I think. Yeah. And there's something else I was going to say. Oh, the PP scene. <laughs> I don't think I would have liked to have seen all of the yellow. So I'm glad that he didn't. Do <laughs> I love how that's what you go to. <laughs> well, I was just thinking, are there any scenes that I, you know, would not have been. Oh, I don't need to see that. <laughs> I know, that's what I'm saying, man. That is what I'm saying. Oh, well, a couple more questions, and then if there are any that we haven't done that you would like, sure. you can let me know. At the beginning of the story, Craig burns his drawings because he believes that his art gets in the way of his Bible studies. But at the end, Craig burns, of course, all of his letters, pictures, and remembrances of Raina. Are these two acts related? And if so, how? I want to say they are because they bookend the novel in a way i'm trying to figure out why i would say they are so i'm gonna punt it back to you because <laughs> i i don't know uh, yeah, yeah they, I, i'm pretty oh, sure, sure they are but i don't related. know how i feel like they're chapters chapters of his story so hmm. he feels compelled to stop this sinful thing of drawing and so he destroys all those drawings and then he embar he starts growing from there he gets back into that he finds reina yeah. and then that obviously doesn't work out and so i think getting rid of that he's like grown up a bit even more um he perhaps the first part it's more like leaning into that maybe oppressive state of the fundamentalism yeah. and and being less uh, of a free spirit or free will but then with Raina like he's really grown up he's experienced this first love he's now moving on from it and has entered a new chapter where I think he really is leaning into his free will and becoming a new Craig so I feel like it's almost steps in like these new chapters yeah no I, th I think that's a I think that's a really good point and I agree with you because um, like you know I see the Raina thing also is like it's been a many, many, many years since I was since my last breakup. But <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Twenty three years since my last breakup. Oh, man. I remember the oh god, it was just, it was one of those protracted breakups. And I remember then let's be friends, and then I remember that not going well, and then eventually me making that phone call and saying, "Look, I can't do this anymore," and I remember getting rid of the stuff. So that's where it really spoke very real to me. Where I was like, yeah. So that's what I was trying to picture, like, kind of, kind of put it into more like you know literary type of analysis here. I was that's that's why I was having trouble doing it because I was like, damn, I've been there, you know. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. Did you burn all of your girlfriend's things? I don't think I set anything on fire. I think I just threw it all away. 
Oh, okay. I don't think I do. I have Is that out of bitterness. Uh, or just you were moving on. Uh, a little bit of both. Okay. And I think I'm trying to remember. I may have. I don't know if I deliberately kept anything. I know I had a couple of pictures, maybe like in a photo album that I still had. <laughs> I know that like this was. I was just kind of. This is total tangent. But a couple of years later, um, I had given a few books away to a couple of friends because like they were kind of borrow this book or like oh yeah I can have you can have this and I'll send it to you. And apparently at some point I had maybe she had sent me a couple of pictures of her when we were still like dating long distance after I got away to college, and um, I maybe absentmindedly tucked one of those pictures into that book. And so she, my friend, she emails me. She's like, so I found these pictures. It's you and this girl. And I was like, oh, you could throw those out. (laughs) Because they were like, this was like years later. So I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. I didn't realize. No, I don't think I ever really deliberately kept anything. Um, Or maybe it was something she gave me, like a CD or something. And I just had it because I didn't get rid of it. But. But yeah, I think I think getting rid of it was a little bit of bitterness, and it was a little bit of like you know I need to move on from this. Okay, not trying to uh, you know get these personal details out of your life. No, 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 no. Just trying to see if like the connection with the story and perhaps using you as an example of what Craig may have been doing. I, I think he is. I think he is doing that though. I think he's. I don't think he's bitter. I think he's sad. Sad. Yeah. And I think he's Actually. sad. And I think. It, and the, the part that really struck me too was when he like goes to hang out with her and she's like popular or she's kind of, you know, she's Craig's not a very popular guy. He's just kind of this wallflower. Right. And he's kind of a loner and, and kind of meek. And it is striking when like you go to meet your girl, you go, you know, if, if your girlfriend is not from your like group of friends, right. Yeah, because you and sometimes you do end up dating somebody who was your friend at first. And I, I there was somebody I dated back in high school, still a friend of mine, and we dated briefly, and then it didn't work out, and then we stayed friends. But when you, in that case, hanging out with her friends, you're hanging out with your friends, and you know. But in this case, it's like she has this whole other life, like that you're not part of yet, and she brings you into it, and like you know, it's a really kind of like odd you don't know how to react to it especially if you're a guy like craig and you're like oh my god she's like wow hanging out with the cool kids and you know she's got friends and they're like hey where you been and like and it's this whole other side and you're like i don't know what i don't know how to react to this so so that was that was just one of those moments that struck me and i think it was just like you know all those things started to add up in his head and he was just kind of sad about losing that kind of ideal version of her but also kind of like The fact that it was just kind of like, you know, it coming to terms with the reality of the situation. Yeah. She certainly does seem like a person who could get along with any group yeah. at high school. Yeah. Good thing she was with the rejects. <laughs> just, I, I, I did get not like a total Eleanor and Park vibe off of the two of them, but there oh. was, I did think of Eleanor and Park a couple of times while, while reading their particular story here. <laughs> So the last line of the graphic novel is how satisfying it is to leave a mark on a blank surface, to make a map of my movement, no matter how temporary. What do you think the significance of this line is? It's, I think it might be metafictional okay. because he's drawing his own life story here. Yeah. Um, he has come t- into his own you know, because he's this. This comes after he has visited with his family for the holidays. Um, everybody is like really. There's really a happiness to this ending. You know, he wants to go out for a walk, and the 
new blanket of snow and and everybody's like oh, we've had our ours and he's just kind of enjoying the world for what it is in a way that he you know you know hadn't and he just uh yeah it's it's kind of contemplation can i also say that it reminds me of the very last calvin and Hobbes strip oh. it's a magical world Hobbes. let's go exploring because they wake up to new snow and 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 it's all fresh and warm and it's the whole canvas to on which to paint and they in the last line it's a magical world house let's go to let's go exploring which is poster sized on my son's bedroom wall oh that's very sweet and endearing do you think that uh well I, I i don't even need to phrase it that way i think it's also the impact <laughs> that we have on the lives of others yeah so you know reina or phil or his parents or them on him and it might be a lasting impact or it, it might be very temporary, you know. So I think Raina probably had a lasting impact because he wrote a novel about it. But uh, on the flip side, who knows if Raina thinks about him at all. But, yeah, something like that. Yeah. And before I, before I respond, I would like to say you're, you're, you're using the word correctly. But it's my also issue a verb. With the word I'm so impact, confused. But the, my issue with the word impact is when people use it as a verb. All right? It is allowed to be used as a verb. I know it's allowed verb. to be used as a verb. I just don't like it when it's used as a verb. <laughs> Let me have this. Oh, my heavens. Because as, of uh, you, because of you in regular speech, impact. I'm going to say impact as a verb. And I stop myself and I say effect. Good. How did it affect your life? Good. Yeah, it's ridiculous. All right, anyway. But it's not wrong. I don't know why you're so hung up on it. Because. But I, I think <laughs> okay, right, I think Dad. It's, it's that, but there's also like, um, and maybe I'm stretching here. Isn't it like early in the novel he talks about like, you know, how he and his brother used to walk on the snow? And, and you might can relate to maybe all the releases. I can totally like, I come from an area where it would snow, but then like overnight, if it, if it, the temperature didn't drop enough or whatever, it was a, uh, a total like almost like a sheet of ice over it so that like you know you wouldn't sink into the powder and if you walked lightly enough you could almost like you didn't have an impact it's like toward the very very beginning of the book where they talk about walking on the snow i'll have to see if i can find it but i was it, it, i think he was also calling calling back to that mm. but i'm trying to remember where um, that they would hang out yeah and didn't he go on a walk with his brother later on too? yeah when right after um when he uh, right after uh, when they were like teenagers, this is around the t- time where he tells his where he tells his uh, his brother, he's like, you know, I don't know how to tell mom and dad that I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. Mm. But yeah, so I wish I could I wish I could find where it was, but but yeah, I, I swore there was a there was a point where he he talks about lightly treading on the snow. And trying not to kind of like trying to make that mark. And I think even compared it to like Jesus walking on water or something. Mm. So maybe he's also calling back to that. But no, I, I do. I think leaving leaving your impact and leaving some sort of impact on the lives of other people. It's on page 132 to 133. Our challenge oh, to nice. find out how far we could venture on those icy snow before breaking through. We had to step ever so gingerly like a cat or like Jesus walking on water. And then he said, but I knew I wasn't competing. He talked about how he and he thought he was that he was a competition between him, him and Phil that, you know, who could who could you know do it the most. He said, but I knew I wasn't competing against him, but against myself, against my own clumsy humanity that had lost synchronization with the earth. 
in that sense, I always lost. And that's where I'm calling. That's where I wonder if that's a callback to that, because at the end, he's Mm -hmm. so satisfied with who he is. You know, there's like a wholeness to him and an acceptance of himself that has not come through this early in the novel. Well, I think those are the ones I want to tackle. Were there any others that you would like to look at? Uh, no, I think uh, the, the, there's just the, there's only a couple of there's only like the one question I, I had, and I'm I'm just going to assume that that Raina is a pseudonym for the girl. You know that one can only assume. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's 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 actually Raina Telgemeier. No, it's not. Um, oh it's from San my! Francisco. Wouldn't that be um, No, she's not for that. <laughs> uh, but I have wondered. I and I both times I've read this, I have wondered like whatever happened to her. You know, yeah. not in a not in a like you know weird sort of you know we need the story of of like you know what was Raina's life after. Just kind of one of those ways you just wonder what happened to somebody who used to know in the past, like. A long time ago. Do you think she picked it up? This book? That's all. That's another thing I wonder. It's like, did she ever pick it up? Did she ever look at this and like go like, oh my god, this is me? Yeah. Is she like? Is she like still? Did she have to stay behind and care for her brothers, sisters? Like, you know, is she? Did she go off somewhere, live in a city, and was like, you know, still was the cool chick or whatever? Because she'd probably be in her forties by now. Or did she help him? Like, remember some of this? Because I was reading the Tegan and Sarah memoir. And I was thinking the same thing of like, I wonder what their high school, you know, their old high school friends think about all of this. But then in the acknowledgments, they're like thanking some of the people who are popping up. So I wonder if, um, if maybe he contacted Yeah, I'd have to do some more research. To get details. I know that at one point that the model that he used for Raina in the book, so not Raina herself, but the, the woman who was kind of modeling for him as kind of a, a, a guide, you know, for the drawings – Ended up being his girlfriend for a time because oh, I read it. I read that's that's it because nudity leads to pornography, mm. leads, leads to homosexuality. I, I guess <laughs> I know what you're going for, <laughs> but yeah. So, but I, 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 so I would have to do a little more googling to see if I can find out whether or not you know. Yeah, Raina was real and 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 how real she was and and if there was any like you know. Anything like that. Um, I don't think this would ever get like a sequel or anything. I don't think it needs it. No. What would it be called? Duvets? (laughs) (laughs) Anyways. So any any other questions? (laughs) Any other questions you have? No, I do not. Okay. Now, sir, you... You you can tell me if you don't want to include this, but you seemed really excited. What was it last <laughs> night, two nights ago? Because oh, was... this sent you spiraling into looking up old friends and connections, oh, was... and then you sat down and wrote poetry. So it was partially, partially. Uh, it wasn't as dramatic as I made it out to be. I was just, you know, being. It felt really well. It's because because I was just being silly. I was partially being silly, <laughs> okay. but it, so here's the text. In all caps, I will have you know that I finished blankets. You said, ha ha, good. And then I said, and I have spent the last 30 minutes looking up old girlfriends on social media. <laughs> the fudge. The whole Raina storyline. It made me think of people from a past life. Oh, my. So this episode is going to be fun. Wink. And that was at 944. I that was a lot. So that the, those texts were from 941 to 944. And then about 20 minutes later, I texted you. This book has made me. This book made me write poetry, Stella. I cannot yes. deal with this. Um, I know what's happening. I, Are you willing to share the poem you wrote? No. 
<laughs> mainly because I don't have it in front of me, but um, but also okay. because it was if I ever decide to actually like you know fine tune it, it was something I jotted down. I did title it. I think that. I think I used the word remnants in there somewhere. Um, okay. But no, I just, I started looking. I just, it made me think of, it made me think of old friends that made me think of a couple of girlfriends from, from high school. Um, one of whom I was thinking of anyway, because like we're still friends and she just uh, celebrated our wedding anniversary as did I too. So, so that was kind of on my mind anyway. <laughs> a third wheel celebrating your wedding anniversary. <laughs> and then, well, no, we, we got married um, different years Oh, you celebrated separately. I thought she was celebrating no, no, no. We, your she, wedding anniversary. You know, our, our wedding anniversary dates are very close. To, okay, in fact, I in fact, I was just pointing out to my wife, like, you know, I have like three or four friends from high school, as well as my sister, who all got married in the same, like, last week to, of October to the first week and a half, two weeks of November. So, like, like one of my friends, her wedding anniversary is October 30th. Like, mine's on November 1st. And then my other, my sister's is, like, November 6th. And this other friend we're talking about is, like, the 7th or 8th or whatever. So, it was, like, so that's where I was, like, wow, you know. But then I just kind of, like, and I had, like, this one girlfriend from high school who I've never been able to find on social media because I don't think she'd, like, ever engage, which doesn't surprise me. But it was just one of those things where I was just, like, you spend kind of, you spiral back into, like, nostalgia and nostalgia can be a little bit of a, you know, can be a hell of a drug because you start to spiral back into like, you know, kind of old memories and thinking about things. And then I was just like jotting down notes for a blog post or an essay. And I was like, Oh, this would make for a good poem. And I think that the poem was all about like, just kind of little details about somebody that remind that I'll catch like at random in the world that remind me of that person from years ago. Like, like the smell of a certain perfume or shampoo or something or uh, a gesture or the some, something about them that just kind of like triggers a memory of that particular person or whatever. So, so it was, it, it came from a real place and I was, but it, and it actually wasn't like, you know, I was, but I was just like, Oh my God, like, you know, here I am sitting at like <laughs> 10, 10 02 on a Sunday night when I have to get up for work the next morning and I'm like reliving my teen years. <laughs> So at least I wasn't listening to uh, to any of the music I listened to back in high school. So. Yes, there you go. Yeah, I didn't put on REM and start like, you know. Oh, yeah. All around me are familiar. Okay. <laughs> well, we have some feedback or something from well, Facebook. I forgot to ask the question. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'll get to the I feedback so, in a moment, but you forgot I to know, ask. I know, I guess. Okay. The question. I, yeah, that was what a travesty. So, Tom, I ask you: Is blankets required reading? I believe it actually is. I would love to teach this as a. I don't. I, I'd have to actually get permission. <gasps> the nudite. Because of the nudite and the sexuality, but I think it's. I think it's a really. I just. I, I think it's just from an artistic perspective, a writing perspective. It is just, it's really, really well done. And there's a lot you can get out of this in terms of the discussion of, of themes of, of religion, of spirituality, of, of sex and sexuality, of childhood and the loss of innocence, and um, in, in, in relationships, and your favorite word. <gasps> em- betrayal. Oh, I was going to go with empathy. Oh, yes. Empathy. <laughs> your other favorite word. I don't know if there's that yeah. much betrayal in this. I guess there is. You could say betrayal, but empathy. You know, just kind of. I think there's, there's. Like I said, this is a beautiful book, and I think, I think it's, it's one of those. There's a reason it's on best of lists. You know, yeah. 
Um, and, and I think it's worth, it's worth its praise. And I'm like, yeah, I totally give this to somebody to, to be like, Hey, yeah, read this and, and let's talk about it. So yes, it's required. Yeah. Even if they are not a comic book aficionado, I think that it's accessible for everyone. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I second all the things you said. So as Stella was saying before we finally went and answered the question, we only had a few Facebook comments <laughs> from uh, Northanger Abbey because one flew over the cuckoo's nest did not uh, drop until uh, earlier today. So we will have feedback on that. Hopefully next episode. Uh, but a few comments on the Northanger Abbey episode really quick. Uh, one from Alan Middleton, professor cheapskate himself, as you like to call him. Yes. Um, yes. Hail doom. Uh, I like all of the Austins, not as good as Hardy, but her books are all solid. Oh. Ranger Gord <laughs> replied directly to you. You really hated Call of the Wild. <laughs> <laughs> this was one of my revenge books. So yeah. Robert Ward, uh, our scholastic book buddy and one of Stella's many, 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 many nemeses online yeah. says, I'm really sympathizing with Tom as he subs up his feelings. <sighs> and then Joe Crawford, Iowa's Joe Crawford said, uh, I need to read that one. So no one uh, mentioned the pump room. <laughs> no, nobody mentioned the pump room. Uh, but we'll check. Keep them coming. Keep them coming for new episodes, old episodes. Um, we love getting the feedback, and we appreciate all of it. We're getting close to another special. We are. We're. This is episode what thirty seven. Yeah. So we've got to come. Yeah. We'll have to think about what to do. That's a good question. Yeah, we'll talk about it. Yes, we. <laughs> but uh, until then, because we have one, two episodes before we get to that, what are we doing next time? Uh, a pretty recent book, and I will admit this is a little bit of a cheat because I'm oh, I am in a no. book club at work where we read books that are potentially going to be offered up to the school board for approval for student reading, and we were assigned, and we were, you know. Uh, I wasn't going to do it this month because I was like, I got too much to do. And then they put this book in front of us and say, Hey, do you want to read this? And I was like, Ooh, I've wanted to read this for a while. And, uh, I was like, and then I was like, you know, let's do it for the show as well. It is between the world and me by Tanahasi Coates. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. So a uh, little bit of a, um, autobiographical nonfiction, but also a uh, social commentary. So it's something I haven't done a lot of. Do we need to bring Donovan on for this show? I think Donovan will be interested to see how we uh, how we tackle it. <laughs> Two white people. <laughs> I think I think it'll be an interesting conversation. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've not read this. And neither so, have I. Yeah, it should be yeah. interesting. Okay. Oh, so you will read it. You're doing double D. Yes, I'm doing double D. Double okay. D. I wasn't sure if you already read it, and so now you're just refreshing. Okay. No, our our discussion on it is the 26th of November, so it'll be a couple of weeks before we record our show. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. So that'll be that. So come back in about a month for that. Um, and as always, don't forget to check us out on Twitter, Facebook, the blog, email us as always. And as always, thank you very much for listening. Um, this is dropping in December, so um, have a wonderful holiday season, no matter what you celebrate, and a very happy and healthy new year. Thank you very much for listening, and take care. And remember, don't stare too hard or too long at the Statue of David, because that will lead to pornography, which will then lead to homosexuality. <sighs> Good night. <laughs> Good night! 
Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true-freaks. That's two true-freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash requiredreading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to 2TrueFreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.